One of the interesting parts of being a parent, one of the roles that we play, is helping our kids process and deal with and overcome their fears, all kinds of fears. Riding a bike without training wheels, fear. Holding your breath and going underwater, fear. Starting a new school, fear. And of course, all things related to darkness and monsters. As a pastor, I get to try to help grown-ups deal with their fears. And we've got quite a good number of fears ourselves. Monsters, if you will, but they're real monsters. They're scary monsters. Monsters by the names of unemployment, divorce, cancer, rebellious child, tons of of others, all types of things that bring with them lots of uncertainty. They bring more questions than answers. They bring anxiety. They bring with them fear. This summer we've been preaching through some of the Psalms, seeking to find God in the middle is sort of the tagline of the series, finding God in the middle of whatever situations and circumstances we might find ourselves in, even finding God in the middle of our fear. And so we're looking at Psalm 56 this morning. I encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word with you, to turn there. If not, it's printed in the worship folder for you. It's a psalm of David. It's a psalm from when he was deeply afraid. He was in a a bad way. Saul was in hot pursuit. He had absolutely nowhere left to go. He was alone. And in a sheer act of almost mad desperation, he flees to Achish. You say, all right, what's the big deal about that? Who's Achish? Well, Achish was a Philistine, the king of Gath. If you don't remember, that's Goliath's hometown, this Goliath who David had just recently. And so David runs there to escape Saul. He must have been hoping that the, the enemy of his enemy might perhaps be his ally. You can read all about that in in 1 Samuel 21. David is at the very end of his rope. At the end of all of his unsuccessful efforts to try to fix things. And he was scared. He was afraid. And his plan didn't work, by the way. He was captured by the Philistines. And they decided that the enemy of their enemy might prove to be their friend if they... Turn David over to him. David has to feign madness. He has to pretend to be insane to escape. What a fearful, fearful place to be in. So I want us to read the psalm that came out of that fear. So I want to ask you to stand if you're able for Psalm 56. This is God's word. Be gracious to me, O God. For man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long. 
for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. May God bless the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together for the help that we need. O Father, Son, and indeed Holy Spirit, would you help us now? We're weak. Our our minds, our our understanding, our very hearts are bent and broken from the fall. And we need help if we're to understand this rightly. We need help if we're to see the way to fight our fears with faith. We need you even to grant that faith as a gift of your grace. So would you be at work in our midst now doing all of those things for our good, but more for your glory, more that our Savior might be exalted, that he might be proved again and again to be the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. Help us, we pray, in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So David is rightly afraid. Things are not going well for him. And he he cries out to the Lord out of his fear. And verse 3 seems to capture the gist of this psalm pretty well. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. And so we see in the psalm there's movement. There is movement from fear to faith. And so I've titled the message, it's not very original, but Fighting fear with faith. And even when you read that, when you hear that, I'm not sure exactly uh, what ideas fill your mind about what faith is. But we really need to unpack this a bit because we're definitely not talking about faith as some squishy, soft, sentimental, hoping things turn out for the good. That's not the faith of this psalm, and that's not the faith of the Bible. So we're going to unpack three things. There's there's an outline in your worship folder if that's helpful. We're going to take a look at faith's object, faith's content, and faith's defiance. First, the object. See, faith is only as good as what your faith is in. See, people want to talk about faith in generic terms. Oh, it's important that you have faith. Um, I found myself in an interesting situation, dilemma lately. I've been participating in a, in a discussion group in our city with other faith leaders. That's what we're called, faith leaders. 
We're called faith leaders because we're leaders of groups of people who believe something, anything. It doesn't matter. Just believe something. Believe it enough. And so we're supposed to have this meaningful dialogue with the goal and the intent of seeing our city flourish. And I am all for that. Sign me up. Let's talk about that. But the discussion is apparently supposed to be watered down enough that all the various faith leaders can find common ground. We can agree on what we're talking about. But it doesn't take long. If we're talking about problems and the nature of those problems and the source of those problems and the solutions to those problems, where we could turn for help... (laughs) where we could turn for guidance, where we could see some transformation. It doesn't take long for a Christ follower like myself to get into a bit of trouble, right? Because I can't talk about faith in generic terms. I can't talk about faith as some lofty ideal or some philosophy. I can only talk about faith as something that's actually attached to the person that my faith is in. And apparently, that's not something all the faith leaders can agree about. David, when he is afraid, is not declaring the benefit of having faith. He's not talking about being a faith leader No, he's extolling the benefit of placing his faith, verses 3 and 4, in God. He's crying out to the Lord. He's saying, it's you. It's you I trust. You're the one I'm having faith in. And and you'll see he repeats that down verses 10 and 11, the, the exact same things. See, folks, here's the deal. Our faith is only as valuable as the object of our faith, the the what or the who that we're believing in. And this is super important, and it's almost a tangent based on what we're talking about, but it's super important, right? It's the object of our faith that matters, not how much faith we have. Do you have great faith? Do you have weak and puny and faltering faith, right? We don't sink or swim based on how much faith we have. We sink or swim based on who our faith is in. Now, part of the value, part of the benefit of our faith being in God has to do with how strong, how able, how mighty he is, and we get at this in verse 7 which is actually one of the trickier spots in this psalm. One of those things that makes us feel a little uncomfortable, that can lead to some awkward conversations. See, in his fear, David is also concerned. He's concerned that his enemies are going to get off scot-free, that they're not going to pay for the evil they're doing. And so he asks God to cast his enemies down in wrath. Now, admittedly, talking about God's wrath is not especially popular. 
in lots of circles. Probably wouldn't go over well in my little faith leaders group. I haven't tried that yet. All right? But let's jump right in. Let's not avoid the awkwardness. Let's just deal with it head on. I want to talk about two things briefly. Number one, just the wrath itself. And then number two, surprisingly, perhaps, how the fact that God is a God of wrath can actually be part of the antidote to our fears. Strange but true. We'll get to that one second. First, just wrath in general. God's wrath. And so, can't make any apologies here because Scripture is clear. God is creator. And as creator, he has placed his expectations on his creatures. And his creatures, that's us, have rebelled. We've tried to shirk, cast off, shed those expectations. And God is rightfully angry with our rebellion. And he has promised to pour out his wrath as a justifiable action of his anger. His wrath, Scripture says, will be poured out for every rebel, for you, for me. Hmm. It's pretty bad news. But, there is a but, thankfully. There is amazingly great news as well. That Jesus allowed the Father to pour out his wrath on him for the sake of all who would place their faith in him. Let me repeat that. Jesus allowed the Father to pour his wrath out on him for the sake of all who would place their faith in him. And so that's the essence of the choice that is before every man, woman, boy, and girl. Either have God pour his wrath out on you or place your faith in Jesus who took God's wrath for you. Now, probably some of you have not heard Christianity explained in those terms. But that, my friends, is is the core. That's what's going on in the Christian message. And so that's what wrath is all about. All right, that's the first thing I wanted to do. Second thing, how can that, how can understanding that God is a God of wrath, who pours out wrath on rebellion or on his son instead of on the rebels, how can that help alleviate our fears? Well, it works this way. If God has the power and the strength and the ability to cast down David's enemies as he's requesting, to pour out his wrath on the evil that they carry out, we can have confidence that wrongs in this world will be made right. That's very often a source of our fear is that they won't. We can have confidence that injustices will not go unnoticed or uncorrected. That's very often a source of our fear. 
We can have confidence that he is stronger than any enemy we will ever face. For the Christ follower, for the one who's placed their faith in Jesus. Because God has already poured out his wrath on him, that means that our two greatest enemies, what should be for us our two greatest sources of fear, sin and death, have already been soundly defeated once and for all. And if he's dealt with those enemies, if he's dealt with those fears, how will he not also along with those, deal with all of our lesser fears. And when we're thinking about the object of our faith, here's the really amazing part. Our God is strong and sovereign and powerful. Indeed, He is a God of wrath. But He is also warm and personal, and caring, and kind, and compassionate. Would you look at verses 8 and 9? This is an amazing combination of qualities. You've kept count of my tossings, my tears you've put in your bottle. You've apparently written down all of my fears in your book. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call this. I know that God is for me. Your tears, your fears matter to God. He takes notice. He regards them. In David's time, not many things were kept in bottles. Only really valuable stuff like perfume and oil and wine. Your fears matter to God because you are valuable to Him. He's for you. If you've placed your faith in the only Son of God the Father, you matter to Him. And if He's gone to this great expense to deliver you, to save you through the death of His Son, He will not let you slip. He won't let you stumble or fall or be defeated. He will not let you succumb to your worst fears. He will not leave you. You will never be alone. You will always be in his presence. That's that's the final hope that David mentions down in verse 13. He talks about walking before God, right? In his presence. He sees you. He watches over you. Right? That, friends, is the object of your faith. A strong and caring God and Father. That's who your faith is in. That's who you're trusting. That object of your faith who helps you to fight your fear. So that's our object. But pay close attention also to the content of your faith. Look again at verse 4. David says, In God, whose word I praise. And then he repeats that again two times in verse 10. And that phrase might seem a bit odd to you. We're going to praise his word? What, what is this? 
Well, if you think about it, what do you do when you praise something? You, you glory in it. You boast in it. If you're going to praise something, you first gotta, you've got to take it in. You've got to look at it. You've got to see its beauty. You've got to see what reason is there for you to praise it, for you to adore it. You've got to ponder what it contains, the, the promises, the truths about who God is, about what God has done, about what God continues to do. See, for David, God's word was the source of his security. The covenant promises that God had made to David, those became hope for him. Those became the rope that he clung to. God promised he would see him through, that he'd never leave him. And so no matter how bad the circumstances around David became, and they became very, very bad, David could reflect upon the truth of God's promises, and that would bring his fear and his anxiety into check and would give him peace and assurance. That end of verse 9, the, the part about God being for him, he starts off the phrase saying, This I know. This I know. Well, how did he know the this if he didn't know and reflect upon God's word? So we know who the object of our faith is, but we also need to know the content of our faith, what he has promised to do, who he is, and God's word contains all of that. And so we have firmly secured in our minds the object of our faith and the content of our faith. That can lead us to be defiant in our faith. That's really what our faith is at the end of the day. Far from soft and squishy and weak, Faith is bold and strong. See, see it's, it's, more, it's an act of the will than it is some feeling or, or emotion. To have faith, and again, this is specifically faith in God, is very often a willful act of defiance. Right? Th- think of it as, as shaking your fist in the face of your circumstances. Right? All around me, my circumstances have gone to pot. Right? It's bad everywhere I turn. Faith is shaking your fist against the supposed reality of those circumstances. At the fear that you feel in the pit of your stomach, you're shaking your fist and you're saying no. At the tossing and turning that keeps you awake at night, you're shaking your fist and you're saying no. And you're defiant and you're saying, no, God is for me. And we see the defiance come through a couple of different ways in this psalm. First is simply from the fact that David keeps at it. He doesn't just say a single time, oh, my faith is in God. I will not be afraid. No, he keeps at it. It's a a repetitive process. And friends, it's a repetitive process because it has to be. It's not instantaneous. It wasn't for David. Look at, uh, maybe in the worship folder or in your Bible if it's open, look at the whole psalm as one. Look at the flow of it. Verses 1 and 2 start out with the problem, right? But then in verses 3 and 4, there's this bold declaration of faith, right? 
but it didn't fix things instantly for David because where are we right back in verse 5? We're right back in the middle of our fear and our problem. And so then again in verse 8, we get around to making another declaration of, of who my trust is in and I will not be afraid. What, what's David doing here? He's keeping at it. He's staying engaged in this process. He keeps praying. He keeps reminding himself. He keeps declaring who his faith is in. And this process, again and again and again, slowly begins to produce some hope and some confidence. Slowly begins to cut the legs out from under his fear. It's not instant. It's not a quick fix. We have to keep at it. Another part of faith's defiance comes from what I would call flexing the muscle, if you will, of your eternal perspective. David does that a couple of times really well in this psalm. In verse 4 and also in verse 11, he puts his fear in perspective and he says, what can flesh do to me? What can man do to me? See, Saul and Achish, who he foolishly fled to, they're just flesh. They're just men. Ultimately, what can they do? They're they're no match for God's power. They're certainly no match for God's promise. God had promised, David, I will establish your throne. David's throne isn't yet established. And the rest of Scripture, the rest of the content of our faith, only goes on to flesh that out further and more fully. It takes things to their logical conclusion. That even if the very worst thing that we fear comes to pass, God still regards us. He still knows us. He still values us. He won't let us be lost. Even if the ultimate worst should befall us in this life. Even if we lose our lives. We have the life to come with Him forever. Assured and guaranteed. In the New Testament, Paul's grasp of this was, was unparalleled. Um, famously, Philippians 1.21, right, he, he grasped the concept that if he died in that moment, it was gain. Right? It was gain for him. Right? He, he goes on even more to flesh it out in Romans 8. You can turn there if you want or you can just look at it on the screen. Just a few verses that I've pulled out there from Romans 8. One of which I've already alluded to. Uh, Verse 31 and 32, what then shall we say to these things, to these situations around us, to all of these fears? What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 38, for I'm sure that neither death nor life angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
My friends, do you face your fears with that confidence? With that defiance? Do you face your fears head on and say, even if, even if this most horrible, dreaded thing that makes me quake in my boots, even if that comes to pass, is that bigger than God? Is that bigger than God's concern for me? Is it bigger than his care for me? Is it bigger than how much he values me? And in light of our promised eternity with him, of course the answer is a resounding no. Nothing's bigger than God. Nothing that I fear in this life can ever begin to exhaust his ability, his power, his love, or his care for me. And friends, every fear must begin to pale and fade in light of that glorious truth. Now, this all kind of sounds too good to be true, does it not? What must we do to warrant having our fears dealt with like that? To have such a strong, mighty object of our faith who's also kind and compassionate and caring. To have such wonderful truths of God's promises as faith's content that would lead us to defiantly shake our fist at our fears. Surely there's something we have to do to get that. And you're right. And it's in verse 12. David says, I must perform my vows to you. Well, there's the catch. Here's what we've got to do. But notice what those vows are. Thankfully, he describes the vows. I will render thank offerings to you. I'll come to a place of gratitude. For the deliverance I've received. For deliverance that we've got to recognize is just an absolute miracle. David was a goner. He was as good as dead. We, well, we were dead in our rebellion, in our trespasses, in our sins. But by God's miraculous grace, we can be delivered. A deliverance for which all that we can and have to do is receive it with a grateful heart as the gift that it is. Let's pray. Father, would you grant by your grace even the faith that we need to believe? The very faith that we need to place in you, Scripture says, comes from you. Even that you supply for us as a gift. We don't have it within ourselves naturally to 
to whip up or to conjure up. You give it by your grace. And so I pray this morning that you'd even do that now. That you'd give as a gift the faith that we need to trust you. To trust you with whatever it is that we're afraid of. You're a great God. You're worthy of our trust. Your promises are amazing and they are true. They're worthy to be believed in. Oh God, would you grant to us the gift of of an eternal perspective that we might defiantly shake our fist at whatever it is that we face in this life. Father, do your work of grace. Even now as you prepare us to come to the table and feed upon Christ, would you grant to us the gift of faith that we need to believe that he'll be there, that he'll meet us, that he'll strengthen our weak and often faltering faith. Pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. Please stand.